You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hello, it's Ed. Hello, it's Janelle. Hey, it's Katie. Hey, it's Melissa. Before we get into my case today, we have a few exciting things to tell you about. First of all, well, welcome to the podcast. We're so happy you're here. We're so happy you're listening. We have a whole bunch of big things coming up. We are finally launching a Patreon. (laughs) We are super excited. So if you're interested in joining our Keystone community, we would love to have you. You'll have access to lots of exclusive content, including more episodes, more interviews with the victim's families and law enforcement. And the Keystone Community Patreon members will also receive a surprise gift each quarter, stickers upon sign up. And once a quarter, we're going to do a Zoom happy hour hangout where we can all get on Zoom and we can meet you guys over Zoom. And um, we're just really looking forward to getting to know you. Now, our other big announcement, another one we're super excited about, is that we are holding a live event on Thursday, February 15th, and we would love all of you to be there. We'll be hosting a true crime killer couples quiz night. So brush up on your trivia of the Ken and Barbie killers, Myra Handling and Ian Brady, and all the other gruesome twosomes. Again, the event is on Thursday, February 15th from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. at the Gem in Spring City, Pennsylvania. Tickets are on sale now for $20 a person or $25 at the door. We're going to have raffles, prizes, and I think it should just be a really fun night. And we're, we're all really excited to hang out with our awesome listeners. And I would just like to clarify that it's the Gem and not the Hidden Gem. Yes, so Make before... sure you know it's the gem. Thank you, Ed. That was good You're to welcome. clear that up. <laughs> You're welcome. All right. So today I'm continuing with the Scranton Five. So this is victim number three of the five of the young women and girls who either went missing or were murdered in or around the Scranton area. As of this episode, I've covered the missing persons case of Shelley Ludy and Joanne Williams. So if you haven't listened to those, uh, please go back and tune in. Shelley's episode was released on December 8th, and Joanne's episode was released on December 22nd, I believe. Uh, we do have a suspect in all five cases. However, he was only convicted in one of the cases, and that was the rape and murder of nine-year-old Renee Waddle. That suspect is Frank Ossolini. But again, I want to make it clear that while he was a suspect in many of the disappearances and murders, again, he was only charged and convicted in one of the cases. So our case today is covering the unsolved murder of Loreen Finn. And this was a really difficult case to write, not only because of what happens, but there was so much misinformation early on in the case. I felt like the whole investigation really suffered. And honestly, it almost felt like Lorene got lost in everything, which is terrible because at the end of the day, she's the victim here. So I usually try to hunt for background information about the victim um, so we can really find out who they were as a person. But I really tried to dig deep for Lorene. It it, it just reminded me of the last. So the last episode of Cold Case that we shot down in Louisiana, it was there was this stretch of road where all these bad things would happen. It was a a 20, 25 mile stretch. And uh, there were so many people that were suspected to belong to this group of killings. And I'm not going to get into too many details, but the point being, when we're doing a show like that, it's so easy to lose sight of the individuals. Because you start to lump them all together and all of a sudden you got a story just about either a killer or an area and you lose track when you lump all the the victims together. You really do lose that personal side. So I love the fact that we're breaking this up and taking time to talk about Loreen because it's it's easy to go. Here's the Scranton Five. Absolutely. And, you know, they are. They become the victim. But, you know, they were human beings. They had friends. They had a life. They had just. So much going on. So let's talk about Lorene. Lorene Finn was born on September 7th, 1968 to parents Donald Charles Finn and Regina Ann Gannon Finn. Lorene was the third born of eight kids. 
She was born in Scranton, PA, but grew up in Englishtown, New Jersey. Lorene was really a good kid growing up, and reading about her, I, I really mean that she was a genuinely a kind, helpful, and sweet child. I'm going to tell you all about her amazingness, but this girl really did it all. And, you know, unfortunately, we're talking about her on a true crime podcast, so she does not have a happy ending. But I can honestly say that this young woman really would have gone on to change the world. So that was she was a super bright light that was just put out way too early. So Lorene was really close with her family and was a huge help with her siblings. She was a Girl Scout. She actually worked her way up through the ranks and was awarded with a gold award, which is a huge deal in the world of scouting. Um, In order to achieve this coveted award, she actually had to meet multiple requirements, including hours and hours of community service. She had to actually identify an issue in her community and create and implement, create and implement a take action sort of project. And I feel like you don't go through all of that unless you are genuinely a good human who genuinely cares about people in your community. You can't you can't like fake that. Right. So Lorene was also really active in her church in multiple groups. She was in multiple groups at the church and was a religious education teacher at school. At her high school, she participated in community outreach programs, which benefited her community. She was also in school plays. She was a part of the yearbook staff. She was in the school band. And as if she wasn't already doing like everything, she was also a really good student. So again, I think it's it's obvious that she was going to do something big. She was really going to change the world, I think. These are the sad ones, the ones that are like true, true victims. You know, yeah. some, some people was, get involved yeah. in shady stuff, but there are like a lot of truly innocent people. I was reading about her and I was just amazed at how much she did and really how much she cared about everything. She was adorable. She actually kind of looks like Melissa Rauch, who played Bernadette on The Big Bang Theory. Oh, yeah. I definitely see that in her face. And she has this big, beautiful smile and she has like teased 1980s hair. She's just, she's adorable. She's absolutely adorable. She's even in her uniform. Yes. There's a picture of her in her Girl Scout uniform and it's so cute. Um, in December of 1987, Laureen was attending the University of Scranton, which is a private Jesuit college in Scranton, Pennsylvania, that was founded in 1888 as St. Thomas College. In 1938, the college was recognized as a university and changed its name to the University of Scranton. According to the University of Scranton website, they have about almost 5,000 students when Lorene attended the university in 87, it had about 4,800 students. Wow. So Lorene was a sophomore. She was an English education major, which, again, goes back to like what I was saying about her caring. She seemed really passionate about teaching and making a difference in the lives of students. Uh, also at university, she played the trumpet in the university orchestra. And friends of Lorene told the Scrantonian Tribune that Lorene really blossomed at that at school. She really um, came out of her shell. She was outgoing and social, and she made a lot of great friends. She really seems like such a cool girl, and it really stinks that, you know, someone took away such an amazing human being. Yeah. So, Laureen lived off campus in Bradford Hall, which was housing that was specifically for university students. That At that time, that was a housing only for university students. I only asked because a cousin of mine goes there now. Bradford Hall is still there, but they allow anyone to rent it out. Oh, wow. No, this was definitely, like, owned. It wasn't a dorm, but it was definitely owned by the university. It's still, like, student okay. housing? Yes. Okay, okay. So on Friday, December 11th of 1987, one of Lorene's roommates reported Lorene missing after she failed to show up to any of her four classes that day. This was not like Lorene at all. She took her studies very seriously and would not miss class for anything less than a true emergency. So what happened to Lorene? Well, we need to go back to the night before she was reported missing, which was Thursday, December 10th, 1987. That night, Lorene went out with her roommate to O'Toole's Tavern on Mulberry Street in Scranton, Pennsylvania. The bar on Thursday nights, they had 25-cent beers. Yes. So you can just... What? Uh, yeah. You can just imagine what a crazy, crazy night that would have been. 
Um, Don't find that anymore. No, (laughs) definitely not. And I I feel like they probably went out to celebrate maybe the end of the semester, like December 11th or December 10th would be probably finals week or something the week after. And um, like I said, Christmas break was like the holiday break was like the following week. Uh, It just seems like such a normal night that they were just going out to hang. Uh, According to an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer, Lorene's roommate left the bar around 2 a.m. while Lorene decided to stay with some other friends at the bar. According to multiple sources, around 2.30 a.m., Lorene was involved in some sort of argument with a man either in or right outside of the bar. He and his friends, uh, who were also at the bar, were later described as, quote, townies and some real bad blank. The article didn't finish that thought, so I don't know what word was used. Use your imagination. Can you put just make some up? Yeah, just make something up. I yeah, don't just know. To... that's literally what the article said. Some real bad blank. <laughs> I'm like, okay, <laughs> use your imagination. Get creative. <laughs> uh, apparently, these guys were giving Lorena a hard time, and one article actually stated that. She kicked the man in the groin, so she was not... Oh. You know what? Good for her. Good for her. Man gives a woman a hard time. Yeah. Agreed. I was like, whoa, she was not taking any... Sh-. And I think even today, Mm-mm. that's a move as a man that you expect. Like, you're, that's one of the things you would expect. Like, I, if, <laughs> if you've mouthed off to a woman, I would totally expect to get kneed in the groin. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, she did it. Lorraine <laughs> went for it. So... Uh, a girlfriend, Lorena, and one of her friends decided to leave the bar and just exit the situation because it wasn't going to be good. Uh, at some point, the women became separated. I'm not sure how. Uh, this is when Lorene bumps into other friends at a mini mart uh, down the street, right across the street from the bar. So she's believed to have left the mini mart with three or four people and she went with them to a party thrown by other University of Scranton students. This party was located in a home at 644 Quincy Ave. This home was about six blocks from the O'Toole's bar where Lorene had been with her friend. So we're going to put a map up on the, our website, but I have it uh, little markers where everything was and everything was just so close together. It's, it's really crazy. So we don't really have any information on what happened at the party or who Lorreen may have been like, talking to or hanging out with or if anything happened. Uh, though we do know that the last reported sighting of Lorreen was around 3 a.m. when she was seen leaving the party. She did leave the Quincy Ave home by herself. Uh, Lorreen's apartment was really only three blocks away, though. So, I mean, I get, I get it. Why not? So later that morning, around 4.30 a.m., police were called by a homeowner on Monroe Street regarding a foul odor. Oh, no. Police and firefighters reported to the area and came across a fire raging in between two homes, 428 Monroe Ave and 430 Monroe Ave. So the firefighters originally thought that this was a garbage fire. They quickly learned the fire was way worse than they could have ever imagined. The body of Lorene Finn was on fire. Oh. Her body was so horrifically burned. Investigators said there were literal literal holes in her body oh. and only one leg was able to be identified as being a human body part. Oh my gosh. So those are oh burn God. victims are some of the worst things you can look at. They don't they don't even look real. I mean, like violence, you can you can understand because everyone has a concept of what something would feel like. But when you see pictures of burn victims, it's, in my opinion, the worst things you can look at. When I was reading about it, I was I felt sick. I feel sick now talking about it. Yeah, because it's a person and it doesn't look like a person. Right. I will say and I talk about this later, but the coroner did confirm that she had passed away when she was lit on fire. So. That makes me feel a little bit better. That's a little bit, uh, gosh, I don't want to say good news because it's definitely not good news in any part of this. But knowing that she didn't suffer that burn to her body, that she was gone before, it's better than what would have happened if she was still alive in that fire. Completely agree. 
Lorene was just about two minutes from her home on Madison Avenue when she was attacked. Firefighters and authorities immediately realized that an accelerant was used, uh, but it would actually take a few weeks before they identified the accelerant, which ultimately proved to be three different liquids, including paint thinner and Coleman fuel, which I'm assuming is fuel that you would use for a grill or... Propane. Propane, okay. Where she was found in her home is literally like almost like next door to each other i know it just it just makes me wonder like was that intentional where they you know where they were i I don't know like it was just so close like they would have almost known where she was going or who lived in that area i don't know yes just makes me well and what i wonder and again i talk about this later but she left the party at 3 a.m she was the, you know, the police were called about the fire at 4.30 a.m. What happened? Yeah, what was going on? In that, exactly. She either went somewhere with someone from that party or was walking home and just some creep happened to be around. I believe she was walking home because it did say that she left the party by herself. Like, that was confirmed, I think, by a couple people. Man, so someone knew. I wonder if someone followed her from the party. Right. Mm. So because Lorene's body was so horrifically burned, it took more than 24 hours to identify her. She wasn't ID'd until late on Saturday, December 12th. The coroner, Bill Sweeney, was forced to use dental records to confirm it was Lorene. Oh, my gosh. He stated, quote, she was badly burned and charred, particularly from the waist up. It was a horrendous thing, end quote. So Lorene sustained multiple injuries, including broken ribs, a broken collarbone, And as I told you already, the only somewhat a little bit good thing was that uh, the coroner could tell us that Lorene was not alive when the fire was started. There was no sign of smoke in her lungs. So it would take a few weeks until Lorene's true cause of death was determined. But as I stated in the beginning, the media ran wild and misinformation quickly spread regarding Lorene's cause of death and the injuries she sustained. So originally, the police believed that she was not sexually assaulted, and it was reported to the media that she was not sexually assaulted. However, we later find out that sperm was present on her body. In an article published on December 7th, 1988, so about one year after Lorene's death, Bill Sweeney, the coroner, was asked if the sperm samples taken from Lorene's body were saved, and if so, was it enough to test? He responded... That he, quote, couldn't be sure at that point. Unfortunately, it seems that after months of waiting on the lab, the sperm sample had not been stored correctly and it was unusable. Of course. Which so often we hear this. This is just this is frustrating. I read that and I was like, really? Why? Why does I just wanted to scream? So I've I've had the same kind of like thing over the years and the more people I talk to got to put yourself in the late 80s like people didn't have the wherewithal to really know like DNA was just I think they could do like blood typing with that with DNA back then but as like they didn't know how to preserve these things they didn't know what the future was going to hold about all these technologies so I do think about that often too it's like man if they would only just been more careful but I the more I learn it's like they don't maybe necessarily have the wherewithal back then to hindsight 20 right of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they all yeah. feel awful about it. They're like, we just didn't know. Well, and I do think it's pretty incredible the stuff they did save, not even knowing about DNA. Right. I mean, not in the 80s, but earlier. And it was like, they were like, we know that at some point this is going to be useful. We just don't know how. That's it's crazy. That's pretty yeah. incredible. That's kind of what I was thinking is like, not even that they didn't know how to store it, but like, imagine... Like, thinking back to then, you just don't even know that there will ever be a day that that can be used, you know? Right. I can't remember if it's um, semen or blood, but I someone told me once they, they back then they needed at least a dime size. So, sample. Wow. Like, now they can get it so it's microscopic. But, I mean, they needed a pretty good sample size back then because the technology wasn't as good. So, they needed more material to test. That's incredible. I mean, if I was an investigator, I don't think I'm creative enough to think of something like that that could potentially be used in the future. Right. 
So because the firefighters originally thought that they were called to a trash fire, they did not take precautions to put the fire out while trying to protect evidence on or around the body. Which I get it. I mean, how they thought it was a trash fire. They didn't know, but it just made everything so much more difficult for the police because a lot of stuff was washed away. So at this point, investigators were wondering if the motive was robbery as an expensive gold chain necklace was missing and it was confirmed she was definitely wearing it that night. However, investigators also couldn't be sure if the gold coin was taken or gold chain was taken or if it melted in the fire. Uh. So over by the curb, and she was found kind of in an alley between two houses. So over by the curb, the police came across Lorraine's glasses, which led them to believe she was not murdered where she was ultimately found. James Clee, uh, he was with the Scranton police, quote, 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 there is no indication of a struggle. The murder did not happen where the body was found. My question here is she was so close to her house. I mean, like so close. So I would think her leaving that party she was murdered in a very close proximity and then was burned there. I, I don't know. It was only an hour and a half. Right. I mean, like, what happened to her had to happen quickly, and then they put her on fire, and then at 4.30 she was found. I mean, it was very quick. Yeah. That's... It was, but at the same time, I feel like, like you said, it's so close that what happened to that hour and a half? Did the person attack her right away? <laughs> So, and unfortunately, we never find out what happened in that hour and a half. So on December 14th, just a few days after the murder on December 11th, the police truly believed that this would be an easy case to solve, according to James Clee, who was quoted as saying, I feel very confident that this brutal crime will be solved. He went on to say that he was confident in the police under the leadership of Captain Frank Roche and that they were not afraid to ask for outside help. Now, real quick, Captain Frank Roche was also the gentleman who worked on Joanne Williams's case. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and I just remember in Joanne Williams's case, they pulled out all the stops. Remember, they did all those grid searches and investigating yeah. the mines. And so it's the same captain. Um, but yeah, they were not afraid to ask for outside help. That being said, I know the FBI reached out early on and offered their help. FBI agent Dan Glasgow even attended some of the captain's briefings on the case. The Pennsylvania State Police eventually took control of the case in 1989. Stick a pin in this because we will come back to why the state police took over the case. Huh. Melissa, when was this in relation to, was this the, the, the are you doing them in order of when they happened? Yes. Okay. Yes. Interesting. So how long after Joanne Williams was this? Did you say? So Joanne was 78. It was 1978. This is 1987. And then I believe Shelly was 1982. But she was the one that was in Upper Darby. And I still don't see the connection between her and Frank. But okay. um, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. But on December 11th of 1988, so one year exactly after Lorene was murdered, the Times Tribune released an article about the case and how now, a full year later, her murder just still baffled investigators. There were two detectives still working on the case. One of them was Detective Jean Carroll, who stated, quote, there's an hour and 15 minutes we just can't account for, end quote. Which the hour and 15 minutes he's referring to is the time between Lauren leaving the party at, I guess, 3 or 3.15 and then being found at 4.30. So kind of like we were just talking about. And it's so hard Mm -hmm. because, like, again, think back then that, like, you know, it's the middle of the night. There might be other college kids around, but maybe not. And most of them who are out are not really paying attention to their surroundings necessarily. There's not going to be cameras at that time. Like, the worst time, the worst time for somebody to have a gap like that in their timeline. And I feel like it's such a late time that most people, because the bars close at 2. Right. So I feel like a lot of people are already home or they're they're staying at the party even longer. So that you're right. It's just the worst, absolute worst time. Yeah. 
So this entire investigation was kind of a mess as soon as it began. As I stated a few times, misinformation about the case spread through the town like a plague. At one point, the Lackawanna County District Attorney actually sent a letter to the Scranton police that basically said, stop talking, stop talking to the media, stop talking about the case. So in addition to talking way too much about the case, the Scranton police just, they just didn't bring their A-game to this investigation. It was just, it was messy and unorganized from the very beginning, and I feel like it never recovered. And again, they just were amazing in Joanne Williams's case. So I think this case was just hard and baffling from the very beginning. So Scranton Police Captain Frank Roche believed that there were a few factors that attributed to the case not being solved, which included the lack of evidence on Lorene due to the firefighters washing so much away. Uh, as we discussed, they didn't realize it was a murder victim. He also stated that the delay in IDing Lorene hurt the investigation because they essentially lost an entire day. And, you know, True Crime 101 tells us that the first 48 hours are the most critical in solving a case. So another is the fact that the murder happened so close to the holiday break. So basically, this murder happened and then all of the University of Scranton students and staff went home for the holidays and... When I was in college, the holiday break was um, basically a month. So, you know, this happened. And before they were able to question, um, like a lot of people, they were home. That's such a good yep. point. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, by the time they came back, I'm sure memories have, you know, faded. And so that was just another thing against them. That happens a lot, too, when crimes happen around like factories because they do shift work. So it's like. You sometimes have people coming in from out of town that are there for two weeks and then they're in another state. I mean, they're just out of there before sometimes even people know what happened. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, one other thing that he mentioned is that on the day they found Lorraine's body, investigators thought the accelerant on her body was gasoline. So they actually spent the entire day going around to different gas stations, checking to see if anyone saw anything suspicious oh, or no. if anyone filled up, I guess, a container. So, you know, I credit them for trying to get a move on things like that, but they kind of wasted the day. Yeah. So that did not help the investigation. So moving ahead, at this point, it's June of 1989, and the Pennsylvania State Police take over the investigation. So why did they take it over? Just get ready to be filled with rage. No oh boy. Um, yeah. On May 14th, 1989, which was Mother's Day... The body of nine-year-old Renee Waddle was found on fire. I will be discussing her case um, in a couple weeks. And this name should sound familiar because the rape and murder of little Renee is the case that Frank Ocelani was eventually convicted of and thrown into jail. Uh, he was arrest arrested a week after the murder on May 20th by the Pennsylvania State Police who had been working Renee's case because she was actually found outside of the Scranton city limits. So it was the state police on hers, not the Scranton police. Uh. So in June of 1989, the Scranton police were working on Lorene Finn. They were working on Joanne Williams. And they were also working on another case of missing 11-year-old Michelle Jolene Lakey. I'll be covering her case next, actually. Uh, after Renee was found, the PA state police found out that in November of 1988, so seven months before Renee was murdered, a complaint was filed against Frank Ossolini by the Lackawanna County Bureau of Children and Youth Services. Uh, Do you want to know what the complaint was about? No, but yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, it was a child sex abuse complaint. The complaint had been filed with the Scranton Police Department, and it was then ignored. Until what? after Renee's death. So this report came in. Wait a minute. Do we know what the complaint was about? What kind of sexual abuse it was? I do not know. Okay. Well, either way, a sexual abuse claim to a child should have been priority. Right. And should have been taken care of well, immediately. And especially because it came from the Lackawanna County Bureau of Children and Youth. Like, it didn't come from some random person walking in. It, it came from 
what I think is a very credible source. Right. Correct. So that was, that really bummed me out. So at that point, the state police are like, yeah, we're taking over. So in 1990, an article was released in the Scranton Times, and it discussed how new information renewed some interest in Lorraine's case, because, you know, at this point, it was like completely cold. So Lieutenant George Camage, who was the head of the criminal division at the state police barracks in Dunmore, Pennsylvania, stated that they had received new information, but he refused to discuss it, which, again, I understand because of how everything went at the beginning. Sure. He later went on to say that while this information was super helpful, it, quote, cleared up a lot of loose ends and narrowed the investigation down to specific people, unquote. He wouldn't say who his suspects were, but many other officers made it clear they believed that Frank was a suspect. <laughs> so it seemed as though the investigation was finally going in a positive direction. Um, but in a newspaper article from September 30th, 1992, so just five years shy of, like, almost at the five-year anniversary of Lorraine's murder, Police Chief George Murphy said of the case, the investigation is open but dormant. We don't have new leads on it. So, you know, there was excitement and hope in 1990, and then unfortunately by 1992 it was cold again. (laughs) Well, my question is, um, of the cases that we've covered and the, the cases that we think Frank Ossolini is involved in, mm-hmm. um, and he was convicted of a nine-year-old. Yes. These other cases are older. Uh, Michelle Jolene was 11, and Laureen Finn was 19, and Joanne Williams was 22. <laughs> okay. So, I'm just wondering, like, in a... I don't want to put myself in that mindset, but if he was going after teens, preteen, younger girls, or older teen, young adult, I mean, it just kind of seems like there's a little gap in between. I don't know. Well, in a little bit, we'll discuss the links between Laureen and Frank. Okay. Okay. So... We're going to move on to suspects. Uh, suspicion obviously fell on the guys that Laureen had an altercation with at the bar. Remember, it was reported that she kicked one of the guys in the groin. <laughs> and these are the men who were described as rough characters. Um, but actually, these men were eventually ruled out. I don't know how they were ruled out, but they were definitely, it was like adamant that they were ruled out. Do we know who they were, what their names were? No, Anything that wasn't like- posted anywhere. Hmm. Yeah. I feel like today we would know because of social media, but no, yeah. it wasn't released. I'm surprised it wasn't one of them. I know. That's what I was thinking. Right away, I was I like, that's who did it. And yeah. then they were like, no. Hmm. So at one point, they also suspected a fellow university student may have been involved in the murder. His name was also not released. But the young man was actually friendly with Lorene. Um, He became involved with the case when police found a denim jacket in his trash can. They also Ooh. discovered paint thinner and other accelerants <laughs> on his back porch. They asked him, why would you just throw away like this brand new jacket? And he told them it didn't fit. So the police are like, all right, well, can you put it on for us? Like, and no. when he did, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the investigators were like, that fits, dude. Like, why did you throw that away? <laughs> um, so it was definitely not ill fit ill-fitting, as he had claimed. Uh, it was then discovered that the jacket had paint thinner on it. It was official. Mm-hmm. They sent it to the lab oh. and got the results back. So to me, that seems pretty damning, but it does look like police were able to rule the man out. However, they do think that the accelerants found on Lorene were from the student's porch. So he must have had the but, fuel and the paint what? thinner. Oh, like Maybe, maybe they, I don't know what they would have been Sorry. doing, but yeah, that was like on his back porch. Where did he live? Do you know where he lived? I believe in between the party and Lorene's house. So somewhere in that like two to three block radius. Uh, do we know why he was rolled out? Nope. It doesn't say. Huh. So um, <laughs> at one point, the police chased a lead that came in saying Lorene may have been killed due to her witnessing a drug deal. But that was a dead end. And I don't think anyone really thought that 
that was legit. So the university student who had paint thinner on his jacket and the four rough characters were ruled out. But <laughs> we still have one more suspect to discuss, and that is Frank Ossolani. So Frank is the main suspect in four murders and disappearances. So really two murders and three disappearances and was convicted in the rape and murder of nine-year-old Renee Waddle. So why is Frank linked to Lorraine? Well, there's a few reasons. They both live in Scranton, but that can be said of um, many, many people. So the next is the way the bodies were found. Both Lorene and Renee were horrifically beaten and then set on fire after they were murdered. Renee's body was found on May 14th, which we talked about earlier, Mother's Day. So that was about a year and a half after Lorene was murdered. Man, I think he did it. It's so... Do we know... Is this... Do we end up knowing who did it or is this open? No. The only uh, one that he was ever charged for was Renee. So we don't know man. where Shelly, Joanne... We don't know who killed Lorene. Like, it's, it's crazy. I think he did. He's so, like, shady. There's so many links. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. So in addition to both of their bodies being found on fire, both victims had accelerants poured on them prior to the fire. It was reported by the Times Leader newspaper that the accelerants used were nearly identical. And then in 2007, um, a reporter for the Times Tribune, Aaron L. Nisley, wrote a piece about cold cases in Scranton and it discussed you know, the missing and murdered women and girls. And of course, it brought up Frank. And this article listed one of the accelerants used in the murder of both Renee and Lauren was a cleaning substance called Drydeen. Do you <laughs> guys know where you would find Drydeen? I do because my husband was a mechanic. Uh, ding, ding, I ding. Do. So in an auto shop. And if you remember back to my other episodes... Frank owned a garage auto body shop. So shady. Oh. Right? So that's definitely an interesting and somewhat compelling piece of evidence, I would definitely say. So I, I do want to say, um, with a dry dean, um, you can buy it, but it's usually bought in bulk. It's something you usually carry um, specifically doing, like, auto body shop work. Okay. It's not something you would just put AutoZone or like a car parts store and be like, and get like a $20 bottle off of the shelf. I do know that that is something that you would buy. You would have to buy in bulk. Well, interesting. And if you think about it, they never said the dry Dean was found on the university student's porch. They definitely said the paint thinner and fuel was, but not the dry Dean. So I don't know where that came from. Did I miss this or where's Frank's garage in relation to all of this? That's probably from a different app. We'd have to, like, put two and two together. Yeah, you know what? I don't have it on this map. I will put it on before we post because it is I'm right curious. in that general vicinity. Yeah. Like, everything is so close together. Thank you. I forgot about that. So I will put that on the map before we put it on the blog. It's just interesting, so, especially if that dry Dean's involved. I mean, when all the pieces fit, it's like I'm just curious where in relation to all this. Yeah. Well, and look where Frank's house is. I mean, she would have had to cross Vine Street. I know he's further down, but still. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So another link between them is where Lorene's body found was reported as being four blocks, quote, in a straight line from the home that Frank lived in. So they must have, with all this information, they must have been looking at him. Oh, absolutely. And they made, like, no secret of it. I mean, every newspaper kept saying his name and police were saying his name. And it wasn't like they were keeping it quiet. Like, they were basically, like, actually, one article was literally labeled something about gut feeling doesn't mean they're uh, guilty or something like Like, it was a gut feeling. Like, all the police were like, we have a gut feeling that it's him, but we don't have the evidence. It's just not there. Yeah. Do we also think, because I'm just trying to think on the other side of it, because they were so, like, headstrong towards him, it could have been someone else, but because they were so, this is definitely Frank, we're not looking at anyone else. Yes. I worry about tunnel vision. Okay. Yeah. So one final link that I wanted to mention is that Lorene often worked at a racetrack near her home in Elizabethtown, New Jersey. 
So there's another link, guys. So according, um, you, how far is Elizabeth Town from Scranton? You know what? I did not look that up. I mean, a ways though. Like, so yeah, I, I would think so. Yeah. New- I used to live up in the Lehigh Valley, and um, Bethlehem was only could get to the Jersey border in a half hour. So, oh, I didn't know that. And Scranton's right. like up north of that. So I would think uh, an hour and a half, if I had to oh, guess. Okay. Mm-hmm. This says, the Google says two hours and seven minutes. Ooh. So it's not too far. Um, but according to the 2007 Times Tribune article, Frank was a frequent visitor to this racetrack. <laughs> so did huh. she wait on him or, you know, could they have struck up like a friendship? Like, was he a regular? <laughs> I do not choose to believe that she would befriend him because he's so shady. Yeah. No, you're right. You're definitely right on that one. <laughs> but yeah, she was so she kind. She didn't seem involved in anything <laughs> like shady at all. No. No, I don't think that either, but she definitely had the personality of, you know, doing right by the community. And I'm sure if she was working there and he was a customer, like she's gonna be very, very nice. It is. I, yeah. I like her straying away because she thinks she's because she's working there. She's not just like a customer coming she's working there i i wonder if he got too friendly and she finally like had to stand her ground yeah i didn't think about that or he started following her around at home since like his because it is weird that he went there frequently and she worked there right i mean maybe not like maybe not maybe those are the only options um but since they also like lived close to each other, maybe he was he started following her around at home. Well, that's what I was thinking. Like maybe they did strike up some like when I bartended and served, I had regulars that didn't really enjoy. But like you got to be nice. That's your job, and you know I knew things about yeah. them. They would know certain things about me. So, I mean, do you think maybe at some point she mentioned she went to University of Scranton? I I don't know what to think. Excuse. All it would take would be for her to walk in wearing a shirt. Exactly. Right. Of it, you know, I mean. Or him being like, oh, yeah, I drove here from Scranton. And her being like, oh, my gosh, I go to school there. Yeah. So I do think that Frank is a disgusting piece of rotting garbage, to put it nicely. <laughs> and we know he's... Yeah. To quote that. Yeah, exactly. And we know he's a pedophile, a rapist, and a child murderer. But just like, Janelle, you said, I worry that the investigators were so desperate to solve this case and the disappearances of Shelly, Joanne, and Michelle Jolene um, that they got tunnel vision. Yeah. But at the same time, I can see why they did. There's so many links. So Lorraine's murder really shook the students, professors, and admins of the University of Scranton. And I get that. When you're in college and you're young, you already feel invincible. And I think that when you're in college, you kind of have, you're kind of in your own little world. And the world feels very safe. And the real world feels very far away. You're in like your little bubble. Yeah. It's got to rattle. I mean, some people like all these, some kids are still getting accustomed to life outside of home, like being out on their own. And then something yes. so tragic happens and it's like, whoa, real world is uh, very real. Uh, Lawrence Duffy, a student at University of Scranton, said it best when he stated, quote, you feel it can't touch you, but it can, end quote. And when he says you feel it can't touch you, I take that as evil. It can you feel like you read stories about pe- things happening to people, but that'll never happen here. That'll never happen to me. And especially Just, when you're that yeah. age, I feel like that's, you definitely think that. And, oh, yes. Yeah, and you just don't think it's going to happen to you or your friends. I can remember walking him from bars in college, and I look back now, and I'm like, what the heck was I thinking? Why was I doing that? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And you know what? University of Scranton actually always prided themselves on being safe. And um, students walked around alone at night. They didn't lock their doors. They felt safe and protected. So this really shook them. Um, So on to some good news, the University of Scranton has a scholarship in Lorene's name called the Lorene Finn Memorial Scholarship. 
which was started by her class. And I believe the first scholarship was awarded in 1990. Um, It's awarded to an incoming freshman who chooses to major in education and English. And according to the Find a Grave website, Lorene is buried in St. Mary of the Lake Cemetery in New Jersey. She's buried alongside her parents who passed away in uh, 2012 and 2013. And her brother, Vincent, who passed away in 2009. Oh, gosh. Her parents had to bury both of their kids. I was thinking that. That's horrible. It's sad. Oh, my gosh. Uh, As far as I know, her case is still open, but it's definitely cold. The last real news article I could find about her was that 2007 article that I keep referencing. Um, And again pretty much pointed the finger directly at Frank. Uh, there was a tiny blip about Lorene in a newspaper in 2012, but it was basically just saying that the crime had happened, happened X amount of years ago. So to finish this episode with a little good news, a reporter for the Scranton Times, Joseph X. Flannery, wrote about Lorene's death a few days after it happened. So um, I think he wrote this on December 22nd of 87. He wrote about her death, and he asked his readers to send their sympathies and holiday well wishes and prayers to the Finn family to try to brighten their holiday a little bit as, you know, she was killed shortly before Christmas. And we talked about this with Joanne's case. It just seems to make everything so much worse. So um, people delivered. The Finn family actually wrote to the reporter, and I'm going to read you a section of the letter where they expressed their thanks, saying, quote, We received hundreds of letters and mass cards from your good readers. Their prayers were a tremendous help to our family at Christmas. The outpouring of love and sympathy from the Scranton community is overwhelming, end quote. So I thought that was pretty amazing. You know, this case is so dark and just shows the worst of humanity. And this kind of helps us remember that there are some good people left in the world. And that can help these families kind of get through it to know that the community has their back. Um, yes. You know, just in here, because you don't know how people are going to treat you. If Because a lot of times you figure, what do you say to that person? Like, it's this woman you've known for 20 years, but, I mean, now that she's lost a daughter in such a horrific way, it's like, how do you approach her? What do you talk about, you know? What um, do you talk yeah. about? Yeah, that's and, so hard. Please. So, you know, that's all I have for Lorene. It's such a bummer case, and it, there's really no ending, which I feel like makes it harder. Um you know, with the missing cases, those are hard because there is no ending. But with this, it's just like we know what happened to her, but we don't know who did it. And that just there's no justice. And it's so I mean, I agree with what do you what do you guys think? I'm not personally, I'm not sure I am 100 percent convinced on Frank. I can see why they were very adamant about him. Mm-hmm. But then I also see she was so close to home. Yeah. I, I don't know that this conversation she had with these guys in the bar. I mean, I don't know what happened and how angry they were. And also this guy who had this stuff on his porch. Uh-huh, that's I mean, weird. And the jacket. Had... Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just... That seems a little suspicious to me, but in the end, I'm not sure it's Frank. Could be. I mean, he does fit a lot of the criteria, um, but I'm also, I'm not sure. I think that she was followed home, I think, because there was a sexual element to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think something happened at the mm-hmm. party and somebody was drinking and got their hopes up. And when she turned them down, she was followed by... Yeah, it's a good point. Who knows? And I mean, honestly, it could have been Frank with how close his stuff mm-hmm. was. Absolutely. Yeah. I also am not like, I feel like I think it's him for the same reason that the police probably did. Mm-hmm. Like, there's several links. He's already really shady. It is weird to me that, like, some of his, like, the, the inconsistent ages really throws me with it that's probably the biggest hesitation i have with like really thinking it's him yeah um unless it was something like he did pursue her at the racetrack and you know she turned him down so he followed her at home or something like something i don't know that one little piece Um, i thought was a little strange because 
yeah, you could have that connection in Jersey where they, but it's two hours away. So like, what are the odds that they also live? Right. That she was going to be at this party that's just a couple blocks from his house. Like it's a very, yeah. it's a stretch, I think. But I, the two are obviously facts, but I think it's a coincidence. But if he was like yeah. out walking or for some reason that night at, you know, 3.30 a.m. and like bumped into her. Yeah. Yeah. That's what that's the part, too. It was like, man, he would have to be out if if she just happened to leave that party and they crossed paths. He would have just happened to have been out at 3 a.m. unless he was like watching her. Renee's case too much. But do we know like the time of death of her? Because that. You know what? I don't. I haven't looked too, too much into it because I want to go like, you know, she'll actually be the last one since that's how he got caught. But I don't know a super ton about her case yet. Okay. So I think it is still open because um, I was looking something up a second ago and um, it said that like in 2020, somebody wrote an anonymous letter to the Scranton police that they think they may have heard something around the time of that. And like this one was saying she was driving by that area and she heard female screaming and then like a foul odor and rubber. Wow. Um, and that her husband said that it was, like, probably kids partying. Um, from what I saw, that people didn't come forward. The interesting thing to me, though, is that they're releasing that when it says that she was dead before she was burned. So, like, you wouldn't have right. heard the screams with the fire. Right. You know, like, she could see the fire and hear the screaming at the same time. <laughs> um, so, like, that wouldn't be the case. Um, but it does kind of make me wonder if it wasn't so much Frank, if she did hear something like maybe the fire was already lit. Well, my question is maybe she was put in the fire and they maybe like strangled her or like suffocated her, like put something over her mouth and then yeah. she just fire maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Just so many questions. Old. Yeah. Yeah. So many so, listeners, what do you think? Let us know. We love hearing from you guys. You can email us, DM us on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, anywhere. We are there. So let us know what you think. And thank you guys for listening. That's all we have for this episode of the Keystone Cold Cases podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And please consider leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to find out more about us, the pod, and the cases we cover, or want to suggest a case, please visit us at kccpod.com or send us an email at keystonecoldcases at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at Keystone Cold Cases and on Instagram and TikTok at kccpod. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any tips. This episode was researched and hosted by me, Melissa. Find all of our sources, social info, and contact information at kccpod.com. Theme music and production assistance from Darren Makins. Join us again next week for another case to sleuth out.